0: Hello, hello, and welcome or welcome back to the Live Label Free podcast
1: and welcome to part two of my chat with Lawrence, the chair and research lead of Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, Edna. If you have
0: not yet listened to part one of this conversation with Lawrence, I do recommend you listen to that one first, as many of the topics discussed today will be an extension and an elaboration of what we talked about in part one. Now, if you have already listened to part one, you know Lawrence and I exchanged stories, and more specifically, we exchanged stories about how harmful traditional eating disorder treatment was for us as neurodivergent individuals. I've talked quite a bit about interception on the podcast before, and we dive into this in today's episode, but Lawrence also talks about a lesser-known term, which is exteroception, so the antagonist of interoception. We also talked about binge eating and masking, and in today's episode, we dive into a few more key terms and concepts, including executive functioning and alexithymia. Lastly, Lawrence shows several autistic traits that were labeled as ED behaviors, and pulls back the curtain on some traumatic stories in which she was gaslit in treatment. Basically, the conversation you're about to listen to is absolutely packed with value, so if you get anything out of it at all, we would love it if you could share this episode with a friend, with a loved one, or on Instagram. And if you do share on Instagram, be sure to tag both me, at Live Label Free and Edna at E-D-N-E-U-R-O-A-U-S so we can connect and ultimately make this more of a conversation. Before diving in, I want to remind you that my new online bookstore, LiveLabelFreeBooks.com, is here and as i've said before i'm super excited about this new branch of my business as it allows me to ship globally at super affordable prices it also supports small print companies that aren't under the capitalist umbrella which is amazon and it provides me with more flexibility when it comes to book formatting and yeah the best part is that you can get discounts by bundling books you can also sign up for the Rainbow Girl audiobook waitlist, which is also very exciting as I'm almost done recording the audiobook. Just head over to livelabelfreebooks.com to learn more, and without further ado, let's dive into today's episode with Lawrence. Lawrence.
1: Welcome to Live Label Free, the podcast, where you'll learn to let go of limiting labels and embrace your unique brain. As my mom says so beautifully in her song... Which is why on this podcast you'll learn the scientific links between neurodiversity and eating disorders, giving you a deeper understanding of how you can face your fears and become truly free. Together, you and me, we will keep putting one foot in front of the-
0: I've been looking forward to this chat since we finished part one, actually, um, and just with all the wonderful feedback we we got on that episode, I'm like, ah, oh, I can't, I can't wait to record part two. Um, so yeah, in our last conversation, you shared your experience with neurodivergence. You shared your experience with eating eating disorders. You ex- you shared how they both overlap, and we both exchanged loads of anecdotes illustrating the prevalent link. And you also shared some key terms, including interoception, extraception, masking, and I know there were a few more you wanted to share about. Um, and I believe these included executive functioning and alexithymia specifically. So can you start off by sharing with our listeners what executive functioning is and how this is related to neurodivergence and eating disorders?
2: So, one thing that I didn't get to touch base on last time is uh, executive functioning. Um, executive functioning um, issues are most related to ADHD, which is also correlated with a much higher risk of developing eating disorders. And oftentimes, autism and ADHD can call cure, as it does for me. Um, so, executive functioning refers essentially to um, aspects of cognitive uh, processing related to memory. Um, especially short term memory, like where are my keys? Where is my wallet? It yes. the door. <laughs> Where's my car? <laughs> um, yeah, and the a popular also, one. Yeah. The
0: popular one for me is where are my sunglasses? Who took my sunglasses, Livia? They're on your head.
2: I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's happening to me? Or I enter a room and I'm like, it's dark in here, and then people look at me and like, why don't you wear your sunglasses yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. Yeah. So another aspect of executive functioning is um, motivation and um, um, ability to prioritize tasks um, and organization as well. So essentially that can Affect eating in, in in terms of going grocery shopping, so that you don't have the motivation. Your like task initiation paralysis when you don't have the motivation to start mm-hmm. something because either you're doing something else, or you are in a in a procrastinating mood, um, and as well just forgetting or mm-hmm. not being able to organize things to um, go grocery shopping, then come back home, then choose a recipe, and then cook. It, I mean meal preparation so can, many can,
0: steps, can, so many steps yeah, yeah
2: exactly and and neurotypical people they tend to do that naturally, but for people who um have a d h d that can be a bit of of a more of a challenging thing to do and um so they they may struggle to actually engage in behaviors that like allow for for feeding and eating um so it can be quite challenging, and I think that that has contributed to my eating disorder as well like not being able to make a choice about what to eat not being able to find a motivation to go grocery shopping and then there's nothing in the fridge so I might as well just not eat I'll eat a bit right. more tomorrow not a big deal and yeah it's um yeah then you never have like a stable kind of eating pattern
0: yeah no I, I resonate a lot with that I mean when I developed my eating disorder I was very young i was 11 and i still lived at home so my i mean the fridge it was never like oh i have to do grocery shopping i have to do the cooking it was done for me and i mean we talked last time in our chat about the Maudsley method and fbt and how traumatizing that can be um and but for me it was more like when my parents would ask like livia what do you want to eat because there was still they knew that i was very stubborn in the sense that if they were just going to make food without giving me kind of any choice of the matter, like I was more likely to assist it. So they'd often like ask me like yeah. what do you want for breakfast? Oatmeal, cereal, or-, or pancakes. And then even that in and of itself would be like I would go like, Well what's the best option? Well, because I can't find a best option because the best option doesn't exist. I was like, I'm overwhelmed. I would have a meltdown or a panic attack and they would be like here we go <laughs> Um so and I think And you know, it's it's yeah, yeah.
2: It's it's really funny because I I cannot cope when people tell me what to eat. So when when people tell me what to do in general, and yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna do it. Um, right, that's where the, the <laughs> it's, demand of right? comes
0: in too. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. But at the same time, if I don't have enough choices, then I'll feel um I mean, if I don't if I don't you have feel choices, limited. Uh, you feel restricted. I feel limited. Yeah. But then at the same time, if I have too much choices. I, I get paralyzed and I freeze because I cannot prioritize because of ADHD. So I freeze and I right. can't make a decision. And then eating becomes like um, a, a whole process that is right. exhausting and overwhelming of, of right. having to make decisions and then having somebody decide for you so you cannot do it. And then too many decisions and then somebody decides for you. And then <laughs> you can never find right. the right balance. It's
0: such, Yeah, it's such a paradox because I often describe like, I am constantly seeking stimulation everywhere. I'm like more and more and more, but at the same time I'm like I'm way too overstimulated right now. Like just yeah. put me in a hole so I can like decompress. Um and it's like trying yeah. to find that Goldilocks balance of like the stimulation has to be just right. And I think kind of yeah, what you exactly. described is like we want choices in what we can eat cuz we want autonomy, but at the same time we don't want rules. We don't want someone saying you have to eat this. And you know the mm-hmm. common 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 autistic trait of i'm just going to eat the same thing every single day at the same time i i think you know it's often perceived as rigid and problematic but i think when you view it from this lens of like protection it's an adaptation to you know to preserve brain energy so we don't have to make that choice in the future because it's already made and we made it ourselves (laughs) so it's like autonomy and avoiding the analysis paralysis um, But of course, like the yeah. moment it becomes a hindrance of I want to be able to eat more foods, but I can't because I'm stuck. Then it's observing, OK, how can we bring curiosity into this to see how can we keep that safety while still, you know, getting a bit uncomfortable so we, we can expand and actually live a life in which we're not enslaved to the rule we have created. Um So, yeah, yeah I'm curious if you resonate with that
2: totally i mean yeah it's it's always the uh, analysis paralysis or the demand avoidance and it's 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 really hard to find something that is in the middle like Having the feeling of having made the decision, so you feel comfortable with it, instead of having somebody telling you, then the man avoidance. So I think that's that's something that's not taken into consideration in treatment of eating disorders, and it it should definitely because it has an impact on on treatment outcomes, and Absolutely. it has an impact as well on how you're treated as as a person with an eating disorder. For example, uh, if you forget to do the homework for CBT, or if you if if you if you resist the demands that are placed on you, like this is the meal plan and you need to eat this and this and this. And, and you're just not gonna eat the meal plan or abide by it, not because you don't necessarily want it, just out of demand avoidance and being overwhelmed. And then um sometimes they will give you a lot of choice, but then you cannot comply with that because you cannot make a decision and you freeze. Right. And that's often perceived um as treatment resistance and
0: non compliant um, exactly
2: yeah. and you're kind of blamed for support needs that you have as as an autistic or adhd or and adhd person instead of being supported you get blamed you get shamed to a certain degree and you get guilted into well if you don't recover then it's your fault because we're doing everything that we can but actually you're doing things that are counterproductive from the perspective of neurodivergence and that's a problem
1: right
0: yeah no absolutely and i think you just described like one of those huge eating disorder behavior is like that's actually an autistic trait i mean the the demand avoidance like the moment you say you have to follow the meal plan you have to eat xyz and then it's like our brain makes that the moment automatic you say switch. that is the
2: moment i don't follow it. yeah
0: exactly and then it's like uh, is your eating disorder taking control over the situation it's like oh my fucking god <laughs> like can we just pretend like it's not some random ghost floating around the room the whole time um But yeah. yeah, I mean, there are so many more, you know, autistic traits and autistic preferences that in treatment are often immediately labeled as, oh, this is the eating disorder. Um, So I'm wondering, can you share some more eating disorder behaviors that were invalidated almost um, during your treatment and recovery that, I mean, the outcome probably would have been better if these were recognized and um had almost... There was compassion for these underlying autistic traits, yeah,
2: so I mean, I went to treatment um a few times because i I had like several relapses over the years, um and so I experienced inpatient uh, treatment quite often, not often, but yeah, a few times, let's say that let's say it that way,
0: more than the um, normal so person. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: um like separating foods on the plate because I, I don't like mm-hmm. when tastes um
0: when they're all mixed up yeah uh, sensory overload
2: (laughs) exactly or eating alone because i don't like the when the foods of others they they have strong smells and i because i have like very heightened uh sensory processing for the hearing so i I have a hard time coping with the noises made by others using cutlery on the plates. Oh um, I just, it, 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 it's really overwhelming for me. The chewing sounds sometimes, especially if I'm tired, that's going to be worse. Cannot cope with that. And like being forced to engage in small talk and eye contact and having, oftentimes um, they are having music in the background here in Australia um, during mealtimes and i'm like no just in australia (laughs) and yeah and it's weird because a lot of autistic people have eating disorders and yet here we are uh knowing that autistic people struggle with sounds most of the time and yet putting the music in the background during uh like treatment like what are you treating um
0: (laughs) what are you what are you tweeting yeah that's a good question sometimes i I Um, wonder the same thing (laughs)
2: And so I would I would be very overwhelmed because of the sounds and all those things. So I, I wanted to eat alone, but that was never respected nor acknowledged as, you know, a support needs that I had as a disabled person. Um, um I mean, it was so bad at some point, um, that one of I, I was trying to use my nose cancelling headset during meal times um at one facility. I, I, I was in And uh, one of the nurses, I think it was the chief nurse or the head nurse, so the one in charge, um, she would prevent me from using my noise-canceling headset, saying that it was against protocol. Um, And I explained that, you know, I was not using it uh, to to be rude or weird, or um, I just needed it because I was sensitive to noise, which would cause me anxiety and was counterproductive to my recovery. And uh, (laughs) she said, well, it's against protocol, so you cannot use it. Well, yeah. the first thing is that preventing a disabled person from using reasonable adjustments is against the law. Uh, yeah. It's the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992. And I mean, me using headphones um, to assist with my no sensitivity, sensitivity is is technically a reasonable adjustment under the, 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 the Disability Discrimination Act. So that, I mean, arguably that would be against the law to do that in the first place. Yeah. Um, but then again, it's completely counterproductive to treatment or recovery because it caused me a lot of anxiety and distress uh, during mealtimes, which is which is the opposite that you want if you want to help somebody in that situation. Right. Um, another thing is that um, I was prevented from using my phone or my iPad during mealtimes. And I like sometimes to watch a documentary with my headset so I'm not disturbed by other noises. I just have the the sound from, from documentary and that can distract me. Sometimes it can help and they don't allow that
1: mm-hmm. in treatment
2: facilities because it's yeah. against protocol. Which It's funny because they're always like, oh, you see people, you know, they're not flexible. Cognition is not it's flexible. Like,
0: right. It's like, who's being you fucking flexible here?
2: Approaches, and every time you try to do something in your way because it helps you cope better. Right. No, it's against protocol. Like, who's inflexible? Like, seriously.
0: <laughs> right. And honestly, I, I mean, that would protocol or that phrase it's the rules I have become so incredibly allergic to that like ever since treatment because I remember too too, in treatment I would ask things because I mean we want answers to questions we want to understand things and I'm like if you can give me a valid explanation for why this rule is in place okay then I'll follow it because then you know I'm part of this but but the moment they say it's the rules that's going to elevate the likelihood of that demand avoidance manifesting because i'm like if you don't even know why you're enforcing this well then why the hell would i even comply with it right um and then also what you say about the noise cancelling headphones and the documentaries and you know having that actually help you eat and then them saying like you can't do this it's it's against protocol not only like even separate from that it's against the law i'm like it's just not the humane moral thing to do to make it actually Harder for someone in treatment to to eat, just by saying it's protocol, and then it kind of goes back to that question: like, what are you trying to treat here—the eating disorder or them like not being sensory overloaded without wearing headphones? <laughs> it's like, yeah. right, yeah, yeah,
2: and uh, yeah. I mean, that thing of like accusing us of being like rigid and things like that is mm-hmm. really funny because I mean, put a mirror in front of them, and they're exactly like, yeah, they're the same. Uh, they're the same they have the same ways of thinking as the the ways that they accuse us to be having um right. which is i mean it's absurd um
0: yeah and i i so, think in in part it's because many of the the people in you know these facilities i don't think they even know what the hell they're doing half the time um because like especially like maybe you know the, the therapists and the psychologists and the people who are trained professionals like i do believe they have some degree of expertise and knowledge but so often i mean i remember my parents um just being flabbergasted by the people who were like giving the dbt and cbt lectures they were like young 22 year olds like just out of college or whatever being like educating us on like this is how you treat a problem behavior and then like they had no idea what they were even talking about they would just read their dbt textbook but when you would ask them like what was the purpose or what was actually this about They'd be like, oh, look at the textbook. Like they don't they don't even know what they're talking about. Um so yeah, yeah. and I think that's kind of problem behavior
2: for who, is it a behavior that's deemed problematic by a neurotypical person or by a neurodivergent person? And what? what's what's the, the underlying purpose of the behavior? Why is the behavior happening and why is it problematic? Is it who is it problematic for?
1: Yeah. Um
2: can yeah. it be deemed as adaptive in certain contexts and why and how i mean be curious about the behavior instead of just saying this is problem behavior let's treat it this way whatever if it harms or it doesn't it doesn't matter just do it this way right but then we we are flexible in our cognition but they're not
0: (laughs) right right it's like if you're going to tell us like we have to adopt it's like you got to do the same thing (laughs) exactly
2: yeah i mean interpersonal relationships work both ways right but yeah i mean
0: co-regulation like that's the foundation of any kind of relationship. And I think especially when you're helping someone in such a vulnerable position with an eating disorder, like that that co-regulation piece, that safety, that trust is just exponentially more important. And it's the very thing that is often lacking in treatment. So it's like, if we go back to the roots, uh, like we don't need any of this evidence-based shit. Like if we just go back to like, what is the normal human thing to do? I think we'd go a long, long way.
1: Yeah,
2: there's a lot of research coming out these days about um, more human rights based kind of like psychotherapy uh, and and also epistemic um, humility. Epistemic humility is essentially acknowledging that we may not know everything, especially if we don't have lived experience. And that's why it's important to um, ask and um, accept that others may know Better than us or different ways right. that may or may not be better or worse. And a knowledge that, you know, our knowledge is, is limited and that there are other ways of knowing that are just as, as valid as ours. And so if neurodivergent people work differently, then we should accept their testimony of it and not patronize right. them and speak over them. And um, yeah. yeah, as, as is often the case in, in, in therapy for eating disorders
0: yeah i com- I completely agree I think it's it's so ironic that stories of lived experience have been left out of the conversation, and that we kind of depend on what the textbooks text books say. Well, if you kind of go back to the roots of the textbooks, these are written by people who don't have lived experience, so it's like how like how is this even evidence like how do we even know this is valid if you don't even know if you don't even have an experience of what you're even writing about it's all based on assumptions and observations um and one of my favorite examples that i often think of is like um say you want to learn how to surf and um you have two options for like a surfing instructor you have one person who's like read every single book on surfing like they just sit inside all day and read 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 how do you surf how do you do the skills but they've never surfed a day in their life and then you have someone else who you know Maybe has, has read a few books, but, um, he just spends most of his time surfing throughout the day. And then it's like, who would you want to learn from? The person who has only read about surfing or the person who actually does the thing every single day? Yeah. It's like, in the end, yeah. you only learn how to do something. You only learn what works by actually working, by actually doing the thing. Um, yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to add that. <laughs> Do you or your loved one feel at a loss when it comes to eating disorder recovery as an autistic person? Perhaps you've already tried countless treatment approaches only to be told your problems are too complex and you're just going to have to manage a disordered relationship with food for the rest of your life. If you resonate at all, I'm so excited to tell you about one-on-one coaching. As I read in my book, Rainbow Girl, my approach to coaching is all about viewing you and your loved one as a whole unique person rather than a set of symptoms that needs to be solved. An eating disorder does not stand on its own, nor is it even at the root of the issue. It's simply a manifestation of many deeper elements, elements that we will unpack and be curious about together. One of these elements is, of course, being autistic. Through one-on-one coaching, you'll learn how to use your autistic traits to your advantage when it comes to challenging your eating disorder so you can live the life of freedom you so deserve. Or if you're a parent seeking guidance on how to best support your loved one, I will help you understand your child from my autistic perspective so you can show up in a way where they start to trust you rather than resist your loving efforts. Just listen to what one mother has to say about working with me. I'm a mom who was desperate to help my autistic daughter with anorexia. Through working with Livia, I have learned to understand my daughter in a way I never could before. Honestly, nothing is more fulfilling than providing others with what me and my family wished we knew and had when we were struggling. To get started on your journey to freedom, book a 30-minute consultation call with me by visiting the link livelabelfree.com forward slash schedule. So that's livelabelfree.com forward slash schedule. Now let's get back to today's episode.
2: Another thing um, I mean, your divergent trait that was pathologized and prevented, I mean, they prevented me from doing it is stimming. Um, so stimming is self, um, self stimulating behaviors such as like flapping your hands or rocking or, um, repeating sounds over and over again. Things like that, that are essentially adaptive for autistic people, especially if we are overwhelmed in terms of the senses it's it's very important for for self regulation and mm-hmm. yet it was deemed as you know the typical you know i want to burn calories so i'm engaging in those behaviors um yeah. it's the eating is all the talking and it wasn't it was just me being autistic and needing to stim in order to uh, to, to self regulate yeah. um but i was pathologized all the time and i would be prevented from doing it because obviously it was not acceptable according to protocol in (laughs) again
0: right yeah Um, i mean yet if i may add to that i think you know kind of going back to asking like what would the normal human moral thing to do would be like in this case instead of immediately labeling that oh it's this you're doing it for this reason i think what if you again co-regulation had a conversation with this person asking them giving them space to be curious about where this is coming from because that way you build mm -hmm. that trust you build that safe space for them to kind of see or understand, like, oh, I'm I'm actually being validated here. Like, someone's actually interested in in my um motivation for this, and that can invite the individual also to be more curious about exploring what kind of function or what's the purpose of the behavior are the alternative behaviors that could serve the same purpose instead of immediately saying Mm -hmm. this is it you're not allowed to do it because as we all know the moment you you stamp a label on it and say like you're not allowed to do this like we talked about before that's make it more likely for us to do it so yeah do you have any other examples you want to share
2: um like eating the same foods for for long periods of time Uh, Mm -hmm. that was often pathologized as the eating disorder talking Mm again it was just autistic me trying to self regulate. Um
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. Again, it's against protocol. Right. Um now I have some probably less um I mean a bit more serious and less funny uh between parentheses, anecdotes here. Um <laughs> um it, it's it's quite traumatic. I mean from my perspective it was quite traumatic and I'm still quite unsteady about about sharing it. But I think <laughs> it's important that people know that this is happening still to this day and how how it how it can be traumatic for for autistic people is that one day i was in hospital inpatient and i had a severe hypoglycemic episode so that means that your blood sugar drops really low and you become drowsy and um, Mm -hmm. eventually unresponsive so i was not to the point where i wasn't responsive but i was getting there i was getting extremely drowsy and not responding as much as i should Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and um so um Some nurses came around and um, addressed that with um, an an injection of of, um, glucose in my veins but while I was not feeling very well one of the nurses that was taking care of me uh, at the time I could hear them saying something along the lines of why do we even like help people like this Um, which was pretty shocking Mm -hmm. Um, and you know it it makes you feel very unsafe um Uh, because you're like, well, if 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 those people don't want to take care of people like me, then how do I know that they're taking care of me in the way that they should? Like, right? Will they let me die, or would the? Well, I mean, you know, it, it comes to the point where you actually become very unsafe uh, mm-hmm. within that environment, and that was pretty traumatic. And actually, one of the the other nurses that was there at the time said that she came to me afterwards and he told me she felt that was very unprofessional and uh, uncalled for well, from the other nurse to have said that yeah. and um so she 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 wrote it in my clinical records in case i wanted to file a complaint later mm-hmm. so that there would be actually a record of that having happened and yeah. not just me saying things um and so i filed a complaint with the um, health practitioner regulation Ag- agency here in australia and they looked at it and they said that, you know, they found nothing wrong with how the nurse had, nurse had behaved. Right. And, um, so essentially saying to a disabled patient uh, who is unwell, um, and struggling that, you know, why do we even care for people like this?
1: Mm-hmm. Or
2: what do we help people like this? I mean, apparently that's acceptable. <laughs> um, right. so. That's an example of how discrimination runs deep um, in in eating disorder care sometimes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I can't even imagine. You know how traumatizing that must be because it's it's the epitome of of gaslighting and invalidation. Yeah. Um, because it's, mm. it's right. It's like if if I'm 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 need in need of help from this person and this person is treating me like. Like I'm the very person that's not supposed to be helped. <laughs> it's like, what's wrong yeah. with me? And then it it makes you question everything and who you are, and it just makes you more likely to you know cling to the eating disorder, which is your like method and yep. trusted safety net in this case. Um. So yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm so that makes so proud you of that lack happened.
2: trust in healthcare professionals as well.
0: Oh, absolutely right. Because if it's like I, if yeah. I can't trust these experts, it's like who can I trust? Um, Which just makes, you know, bouncing from treatment center to treatment center, it just makes everything worse because you just keep losing more and more trust to the point where they eventually say, well, you've done so much treatment already, like, you might as well just give up. (laughs) And then it's like, okay, well, if the the person who's supposed to save me has given up, how, like, what am I supposed to do now? Um, Exactly. That's how it made me feel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, kind of, um, with all that said, um, before we transition into alexithymia, do you kind of want to share any more anecdotal experiences, um, that you've kind of gained insights from <laughs> throughout treatment?
1: Yeah.
2: Um. Well, I mean, I think there is like a, a culture of uh, patronizing and dismissing the voices of people with eating disorders in general, but even more so if they're autistic. I feel. Uh, For example, I was in hospital at some point and I read the clinical notes about me and it was written patient with ASD or, you know, patient with autism, uh, even though I had expressed the fact that I wanted to be called autistic and that I felt that the term ASD was um, offensive Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: still they didn't care. They just wrote whatever in the notes, which, you know, there's a lot of research now at this point coming out, showing that like autistic people don't enjoy being called that way and prefer um autistic or not using asd and just autism
0: right because it it pathologizes it it's like saying you have like a disease but it's like this isn't a disease it's an identity it's me like you exactly say to someone you know who identifies as queer or trans oh they have queerness they have transness they're actually a boy or girl but they believe that they have queerness it's like that is just so invalidating.
2: It is, yeah. If if somebody called me, oh um, you have bisexuality, I would be like
0: right, ah. right. It's, I,
2: it's I wouldn't crazy. be very happy. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Exactly. I think that in general there is a, a lack of accountability um when it comes to like listening to people with lived experience and um accountability in, in acknowledging that you can do harm to people even when you yeah. don't intend to. Um right. and it's important to actually take a step back and self reflect and be able to say and raise your hands when you are called out for things that have harmed your patients mm-hmm. um just be honest and have humility to recognize that yes you may have been harming patients even though it was not your intention that doesn't mean that you're a bad practitioner you're a bad right. person like actually it, it will make you even more compassionate and, and a better practitioner by being able to take a step back and acknowledging that you've caused harm and pledge yourself to do better and listen to your patients in the future rather than just act very dismissive and and just not listen to patients when they tell you those things. I know it can be very uncomfortable and and it it, it sucks when, when you realize that you've probably harmed your patients even though I want at your attention, but it's important to acknowledge and I think there is a lack of. of responsibility and accountability and humility um in in that sector and that needs to change in the future
0: i i mean i absolutely love that you brought that up um in in saying that acknowledging that you don't know everything you don't have all the answers that that actually makes you a much better practitioner than pretending like you know everything and it reminds me of that that quote of socrates right true knowledge um or the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing um because i think the moment we say that and and have that humility we open our minds to well we open our entire being to being a constant learner um i mean in my biography that i share everywhere in my books it's like i'm a lifelong learner um even with coaching and with my clients like and someone starts working with me i will never say like this is how we're gonna do things this is the plan this is how i always do things it's like no you teach me you guide me like wh- what are you struggling with where do you want to go let's go on this journey together and let's learn together um again co-regulation creating a relationship exactly. I mean everything is about creating a relationship not only with others but with ourselves like that's how you gain trust um because we trust be we have relationships with and we want to develop relationships with people we trust like there's a reason we don't get in the car of a stranger, because we don't trust this person, we don't know this person. Um, And I think it equally goes, you know, for the the relationship with ourselves. Like we have a hard time feeding ourselves and, and, you know, recovering from an eating disorder because we don't trust our body. We don't trust that our body's gonna show up for us in a certain way or that it's going to feel the way we want it to. But I think when we go on this journey of curiosity and say, I'm willing to discover and learn what makes me feel best and, and how I can accommodate that, that's when the love comes and that's when the, the love grows and, and we can embrace yeah. a truthful aut- autistic selves.
2: Yeah, definitely agree with that. And it's funny. I mean, um, it's a bit of a stretch, but I think it's relates somehow to what you just said is that there's research coming out at the moment saying, I mean, showing that essentially um, the relationship, the nature of the relationship between a the therapist and their patients is more important in terms of treatment outcomes than the therapy modality itself. Mm-hmm. So they did some tests, and they could see from statistical analysis of treatment outcomes, and like they tested those variables, and and they they saw that regardless of what therapy is used, whether it's modality CBT or DBT or FBT, regardless of the therapy modality, the best predictor of treatment outcome was the good or the bad relationship. Between the therapist and their patient, so like the the interpersonal fiber is extremely important in psychotherapy and, and treatment and like how your patient actually um ends up um in in the process of therapy from eating disorders and 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 yet for for neurodiver- neurodivergent people it's it's hard to find a good fit with a therapist if they're always patronizing you.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it really all does come back to that question of. What's the the moral human thing to do in this situation? And then following that, because I mean, that's how we've survived for centuries, (laughs) is by creating true relationships. So I mean, we can have all these labels like therapy and therapy treatments and evidence based this and that and that. But it's like I think the reason why many of these treatment modalities don't work is because they get they take us away from doing the moral human thing, which is ultimately that's loving energy, which I mean love is the greatest force of all and i think we are taken away from that when we try and seek answers outside of the answers inherently in our heart we all possess i believe unless you're a psychopath that starts world wars but that's a whole different story (laughs) um so yeah thank you so much for sharing those those anecdotes and kind of those eating disorder behaviors that were you know i mean the autistic traits that were seen as eating disorder behaviors i think this is such a an important conversation. Um, and I think it validates a lot of people listening, um, as well as like the parents of of um autistic children with eating disorders, um, because it helps them be compassionate and understanding of like, oh, this behavior isn't actually problematic. Like what if we invited curiosity and looked at this from a different perspective so we can accommodate them, help them feel more safe, so they can better trust us, so they're actually more likely to recover um so yeah thanks again so much for sharing that um mm-hmm. kind of going off of like all of that and gaining trust in our body and um i guess interpreting internal signals um i'd like yeah. to transition into alexithymia can you kind of share with our listeners what is that and how is that related to no neurodivergence and eating disorders
2: Sure. So, alexitamia uh, refers to difficulties appraising, integrating, and making sense of our feelings and emotions. So, it's very much based in interoceptive awareness, which we have discussed last time. Um, so, for example, somebody that is struggling with alexitamia may perceive um, may perceive like certain sensory aspects as emotions or um, be confused about why or how they're feeling emotionally. So, for example, you can have struggle with knowing whether you're overloaded by the lights or the smells or the sounds, or if you're angry or hungry and and irritated and you're not sure which one is which and it's a bit of a, a mismatch and you're very confused about how you feel and Sometimes when people ask you, how do you feel? You don't know how to answer, which right. happens to me a lot. Like some sometimes okay. people ask me, so how do you feel? And I'm like, mm, I think to myself, how do I feel? <laughs> and yeah. I don't know. Um, and sometimes I, I just feel like answering the person's thing. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't know how I feel. Um, okay. But I realized that this can be a bit um, weird for new typicals so I just say I'm fine thank you
0: right instead right it's it's that like very common thing of when someone asks you how are you and you just say I'm good because that's what you're supposed to say and yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I, I have the habit which I think many people do of the autistic oversharing in which I'll be like yeah actually I'm really struggling today I have all these deadlines and th- and they'll look at me like that's not what you're supposed to say, you're just supposed to say you're good and then move on. Now, like, what do yeah. I have to say? And it's like, yeah. well, like, you think we script and plan conversations? Well, clearly, you're not prepared. It's hilarious, yeah. yeah,
2: it is, yeah. And, um, I think that alexitamia as well relates to eating disorders because you cannot really like you, you, you mix um, sensory sensation with emotions, and so sometimes you can. You can feel like you're hungry, but you're not really. I mean, you're not hungry. You're actually irritated, right. overloaded by sounds, overloaded by thoughts, and it, 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 yeah, it, it can lead to um binge eating, for example, or like what people call emotional eating. Yep. Um, I know some people don't like the term, so I'm, I'm just referring to it that way. But I acknowledge that this may not be the best expression for everyone.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, I, I like that you brought up the binge eating piece because I think we've been talking a lot about, you know anorexia symptoms and and the restriction and not eating because of analysis paralysis. Um, but kind Mm -hmm. of like we talked about last time about, you know, how binge eating can can be a really big misunderstood struggle. Like just eating so much until you feel so sick and so full. Like that can also have to do with not knowing what the fullness feels like, not knowing what the satisfaction feels like. And I think that analysis paralysis can also go the other way of like, I can't choose what to eat. I don't know what to eat. So I'll just eat everything in my kitchen so that I don't have to choose either <laughs> and then it leads yeah. to that thing of feeling so full and so sick um so yeah i mean that skill i guess is something really we have to develop and i mean like i say we are all lifelong learners i think it's so important to also have humility within myself um and you know other eating disorder coaches i think it's so such an act of courage when they say you know i'm recovered from this illness um an eating disorder or, you know, I've recovered from binge eating, I've recovered from anorexia, but I am not immune to, you know, still having problems with food sometimes. Like I overeat sometimes, I under eat sometimes. And then the next day it's like, yeah, you did something yesterday that your body doesn't totally agree with. Now we're going to make up for it kind of thing. And then again it comes back to, oh, that's interesting. How can I learn from this? How can I have curiosity around this and just keep improving as a person? Um, because if we had all the answers if we knew the perfect way to live it would literally be no point in living life because <laughs> i think that yeah, you know there's so many books about like what finding your purpose in life and i think one of my answers is like learning discovering um yeah. constantly so and,
2: and yeah. like purpose is not necessarily an end point either it's, right. it can be a journey And, and people oftentimes I think, think of like finding one's purpose is, is like an end point. It's like, that's it. I found my purpose, but, um, I found my purpose like hundreds of times in my life and I might still change. So I mean, uh, finding purpose is not something that has an endpoint. It's a journey I feel. And as you said, it's based, it's a journey that's based in learning and unlearning as well because people think about like they, they always talk about learning and learning and learning but what there is a lot of unlearning and sometimes relearning that's yeah involved.
0: i love that you brought that up with with the purpose and how it's constantly evolving because i mean when i was deep in my eating disorder i thought that was my purpose and then it was yeah. like when i was recovering from that it was unlearning those habits and those behaviors and learning well, what can I invite into my life that's going to give me more purpose and more fulfillment, and especially what's going to actually contribute beyond me? Because an eating disorder, it, it traps you in this little tiny world of, like, it's, like, if I have this, I'm safe, I'm safe. Um, But, like, it yeah. doesn't actually do anything for anyone else. It just actually hurts other people. Whereas when you recover and, you know, discover, um, oh, wow. Like, and, and
2: it hurts you, as. Yeah. Primarily, <laughs> right. as, as and like, suffering Primarily.
0: Right. I think that's, you know, the beauty in the work that we both do is we've turned our mess into a message like you, you know, working for Edna, me writing books and, and coaching and us just having this conversation that people can listen to and gain insight from. I mean, this in and of I mean, itself. I'm still
2: struggling, but yeah. Right. But me. it's like you're working don't... on it, but, but I'm right. learning at the same time.
0: I mean, I'm still struggling with so many things. Like yesterday, I had a a podcast interview with with Louise from No Divergent Lou, and we were just talking about burnout and the autistic tendency to constantly overwork. Right now,
2: all the time? Yeah,
0: and like numbing myself in in working, like feeling, oh, as long as I'm working, as long as I'm posting, then I am productive. But it's like that maybe the more productive thing to do right now is just go to rest and read a book um so that's something you know i'm still trying to be curious about of like oh what are my boundaries around energy and time and space and what space do i need you know to show up in the best way again it all comes back to learning and and discovery so i'm really glad you know we we brought this up because this goes beyond just eating disorders it it goes for all aspects of life um yeah so yeah, so do you want to share anything else about alexithymia or um, would you want to move on to the next question? I think,
2: I think that pretty much summarizes um, the aspect of being confused about your sensory input and then having that have impact on how you feel in terms of emotions and being confused about that and then um, having issues with um, your eating behaviors and, and feeding behaviors around uh, emotional eating between parentheses and and binge eating. Um, I think that's that's the main message out of it.
0: Wonderful. Well, speaking of main messages, um, do you have any further words of wisdom for anyone currently struggling with an eating disorder while being neurodivergent? Yep,
2: yeah, sure. Um I think that um what has put me on the way to recovery, even though I'm still struggling to this day, but I acknowledge that I'm feeling a lot better within myself, even though I'm still struggling, I'm feeling within myself much better than I was a few years ago. Um, I, I would say that the main thing is like realizing that there's nothing inherently broken or wrong with you, um, and that your struggles are valid as a disabled person and you deserve to have your support needs um acknowledged. Validated and uh, met. Um, So don't be afraid to speak up and self advocate if you feel that your needs are not taken seriously nor accommodated. Um, You are allowed to take space and be loud, even though people tell you that you're too much and that you have too much strong opinions and that you're too expressive. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you express yourself the way you want and that you are able to. Um, have your support needs met you're not lazy for uh, attending to your well-being like it's not unproductive to engage in self-care it's actually quite the opposite and you are worthy the way you are even though you struggle in life with things
0: I love that that is absolutely beautiful and just such a wonderful way to wrap this up because again it all comes back to giving ourselves permission, giving ourselves compassion to be who we are, to express ourselves in the way we are. And I think the more we allow ourselves to do that, the closer we come to, you know, discovering who we are truly inside. And it also helps us to learn more about ourselves because you can only learn when you're honest about who you are and, and what you even want to learn in the first place. So. Thank you again, Lawrence, so much for right. coming back on the podcast to record part two. Um, to everyone listening, I mean, if you have not yet listened to part one, obviously, super, super valuable Listen conversation. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, again, thanks so much. I I can't I can't thank you enough. Um, I always just thank love you. love chatting with you. So, um, in case you know people want to learn more about you. Um we'll get in touch. I, I know we mentioned it in the last episode, but can you kind of repeat that for everyone listening?
2: So I'm the chair of a not-for-profit organization, uh which is called um eating disorders New Diversity Australia. So you can add to our website which um Livia will share because yes, I will. <laughs> spending is not the greatest asset in life. Um and then on the website there is a contact form or you can email us as well. So all the details will be shared on our website, if needed. We like,
0: yes, and that will indeed, like Lawrence so beautifully said, will all be in the show notes so that we don't make any letter mistakes while saying it out loud. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah exactly. Cause I, even when I read from a script, I'm like, E-D-N-A, and like, I'll like, yeah. make sure I'm saying it right. And I'm like, I can always speed this up if I talk too slowly, um, Yeah. So Wonderful thing about editing. But yeah, again, thank you, Lauren, for coming on the podcast. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And I will chat with you all in the next episode. Bye bye for now. Just one foot in front of the other. And you'll see around the
1: corner soon. This podcast has been recorded by your host, Liv. This podcast has been edited by my small but mighty Live Label Free team and the beautiful song One Foot in Front of the Other that you are now listening to was written and recorded by my beautiful mom, Louise Alexandra. I am so grateful for my team and everyone who supports Live Label Free. Together, we are always stronger.